but the, a lot of people call him the father of modern computing. You must they must have came up at some point during uh, your education at Purdue, right, Andrew Alan Turing? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Dylan and Joe Basement Podcasts. We're your host, Dylan. And Joe. And today we have our special guest, who's a subject matter in cryptocurrency, Andrew Thrain, on board. Say hi to everyone, Andrew. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Good to be with you again. <clears throat> so, Andrew, Andrew Thrain, um, our and first guest and our favorite guest, back again. We're glad keeps, to see you. He keeps showing up. Andrew, could you please uh, let us know what sparked your interest in mythical creatures? Mythical creatures. Uh... <laughs> I thought you'd get the joke. <laughs> yeah, isn't that what we're talking about today? Our subject this week is cryptozoology, correct? You know, big oh, foot, yes. yeah, mythical uh, creatures. Yes, the chupacabra. This is what we're talking about this week. Uh, this is what that, this podcast is Yes, that's definitely a topic I can riff off of because I know so much about it. <laughs> so Andrew, tell us about cryptocurrency and where we should start with uh, what we want to learn this week and find some more about regarding money, not <laughs> Yeah, so that's what we're talking about this week. We're talking about the idea of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is going up, up, up this week uh, in the past months recently. And people are asking questions. Everyone from your grandma to your, you know, your cousin who works at Wall Street is all trying to invest in this thing and try to figure out what it is. And me and Dylan had spoke to Andrew in the past. Uh, about this and brief detail and he said that he he knew a great deal about it and we want to learn more about it so we thought if we're gonna have him back on we gotta get into cryptocurrency which is what we want to talk about this week yeah guys so um you know as you let in with we're gonna cover uh some high level uh cryptocurrency and bitcoin topics today so kind of the way that i want to approach the discussion is from a more high level type economic type approach um I think Joe and Dylan may get into some technical detail as well, and we can certainly discuss that uh, as it comes up. But um, sure. my background, well, I don't have any professional background in Bitcoin, first let me say that, or cryptocurrency, but I've been studying it for probably three or four years now. Um, yeah. So, hey, before we get started, do you mind if I ask you, what did you first hear about Bitcoin? I know you must have heard of it before we did. Uh, when did you first hear about it? What was that like? So... I first heard about it back in probably late 2016, early 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, the light bulb didn't really go off in my head about what I know now, and we'll get into some of that certainly in this sure. in this podcast. But, uh, but how did you hear I, about it? Uh, so how I heard about it was primarily word of mouth from some friends that uh, I, I mean I was investing at the time in regular stocks and things like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, as any investor might, they look at things that are going up rapidly and you start to get pretty interested when you see things doubling and tripling in short order. <laughs> so 
started hearing about it from some friends, uh, looked at a couple charts, watched maybe some YouTube videos, and then yeah, the intro the, course, yeah, you know, a charts, couple intro videos, you're in, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and then just I bought some without knowing a whole lot about it. Um, yeah, I don't, I didn't make a whole lot in the boom and bust of 2017, 2018. Spoiler alert, we'll get there. Uh, yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> and then, uh, so it was at the time, you know, it, it was a craze. And then I kind of lost a little bit of interest because I didn't understand some of what we're going to get into today. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be clear, you're talking about, you know, educational interest, not financial interest. Now, absolutely, yes, educational interest. So at the time, it was a way to make money. Uh, didn't really know much about the space at all and you know had some fun trading it but that's about it uh lost a little interest when the prices dropped and then uh then uh later in about early 2019 i, I kind of was like checking some of my my portfolio and i noticed i still had a little bit of money in there and i kind of mm. was like should i sell this or should i you know because it was much lower than where it had gotten to in bubble in, in 17 and so that's when I started deep diving into it and I fell down the rabbit hole and I've been just pretty obsessed ever since uh, yeah so that's kind of the background of the kind of path of it <clears throat> and you still have Bitcoin absolutely <clears throat> wow nice I've actually never Okay, I sold a little in 17, but since then I have not sold at all. And I probably won't sell again for several years, at least. So what made you what made you sell in 17 and not sell all of it? Because I can see wanting to dump it at that time when it was starting to look kind of wonky, but you still held on to some of it. What made you do that? So at the time I put, at the beginning, I put enough to where it was like, for me, you know, everyone has their own thresholds of what they're willing to wager. And at the time for me, I put in kind of what I was willing to wager uh, with the mindset of, well, if it falls, I'll just try to catch the falling knife and at least get out before I lose my initial investment. Uh, so it, you know, for those of you guys who aren't super familiar with the history of Bitcoin, uh, in 2017, we had this meteoric run from like, $1,200 all the way up to $20,000. And then in short order at the beginning of 2018, it crashed from 20 down to like 6,000 and then eventually down to $3,000 where it bottomed out. Uh, so I sold everything that I kind of was like not willing to lose completely. And then I just left like a little bit in there because I was like, you know what? I'll just leave it in there. I don't want to miss out a hundred percent on any upside if it happens to rebound and I'm not paying attention. So that's why I kept some in there. That is, that sounds like a pretty shrewd decision, but that is actually pretty good to frame what we're going to talk about today because that is the mentality you're going into it. Like you said, you're not a financial expert, but you certainly know more about investing than Dylan and I do. So that's a good way to kind of like frame where we're going in this conversation by like what Bitcoin is and um, what it looks like going forwards sure but me and joe were, were talking last night about um some other people we know who are who have investments like this and they were when they were like in their teens they hit the online poker phase too and did really well and we were like that's the type of guy we'd want to be our money manager at a company did you ever do anything like that like back in the day 
I never had any money when I was young, so no. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Uh, No, I never really got much into uh, gambling, uh, like poker or sports betting or much into that uh, lottery. I I don't know. I just – it didn't strike my fancy until I got out of school and started working and then started thinking, you know, I got a little extra money now. What should I do with it? I don't want to just let it sit there because I don't really plan to spend it unless I have an emergency. So I'd like it to work for me a little bit. And then that's when I got into really deep, really deep into standard typical markets and and the stock market. Um, So I have been going very hard on the stock market for five, six years or so. And Bitcoin has been a small piece of that up until like, early 2019 obviously did you ever consider investing in uh, hookers and blow before you decided to invest in the market uh yeah so i i actually have kind of a funny story about that because that <laughs> I, I i know the long-term investments is pretty shaky but the immediate returns is unparalleled the best um, short-term returns you can possibly get do you remember the story of i won't mention his name on the show but one of our friends who we can won <laughs> Who won won the DraftKings million dollar pot like back in like 2015 and he literally blew all his money in like a year on hookers and blow. (laughs) And I think he bought like a Lambo which ended up getting repoed because he uh, (laughs) didn't set any money aside for uh, taxes which Ah. when you win the lottery is like 40%. Yeah. or something like that. Yeah, so. gonna keep on easy come, easy go. It's so true. It's such a lame expression, but it really is. It's like if you get a million dollars, and it's really cool to have a like three hundred thousand dollar car, but your excise tax is not one hundred forty dollars like your Camry. It's it's different now. You know, yeah, that's not a one time purchase. You are investing that car long term. Never mind the maintenance. Insurance at twenty something years, twenty something year old boy with a Lamborghini insurance. Yeah. I have You'll I have, have a speeding ticket, and my year. insurance on my fucking jet is one hundred forty eight dollars a month. So can't imagine. Wow. A, uh, yeah. Um, I I quoted insurance for buying a CTSV when I was like twenty three, and it was like eight hundred dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's twenty three. That's not. Like it was that. more than the car payment. <laughs> yeah. Dude, but it's, it's uh, worth it, man. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so funny. Damn. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so, so when you're not blowing your money on Lamborghinis, ironically enough, if you would have invested all that DraftKings money in Bitcoin, you'd be a very wealthy man right about. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was probably at a hundred bucks back then or less maybe. And it's at just for the record. So as of recording today, uh, we're bouncing around $38,000 US dollars per Bitcoin as of right now, uh, roughly. Gotcha. Uh, that yeah, that's a good base to put our you know discussion on. So we know right now, if you had one Bitcoin, which for people who understand like the difference between um, different coin wallets, you're not going to buy one full Bitcoin. You own a percentage of one Bitcoin, which is similar to a share. So you wouldn't actually have to purchase a full Bitcoin for 30 grand to own any Bitcoin. You just purchase a fraction of it and it translates roughly to U.S. dollars that way. So, Joe, I'm really glad you brought up the fact that we can people can buy fractional Bitcoin because I think maybe that there's a misconception out there to the new guys that oh, I can't afford it. It's $38,000. Where am I going to come? No, you, right. so Bitcoin, it can literally be broken down as far as one Satoshi, which is equal to one one millionth of a Bitcoin. So you can literally buy one one millionth of a Bitcoin in theory. I don't know if exchanges offer that low of a, 
volume at this price, but if the price inflates like exponentially, you can in theory buy one one millionth of a Bitcoin. Yeah, so, so if there's some time in the future where a Bitcoin is worth one million dollars, you could spend a dollar to you know to have one one millionth of that Bitcoin. That's I mean, that exactly makes sense. right. So um, with that, I think we can probably segue into the topic for the day, which is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So um, really glad you guys have me on the show. I'm, I've been really excited to get to talk about this topic. I'm really passionate about it and uh, had a yeah, lot man. of Yeah, man. I mean, we knew when we talked to you before, we had to have you on for this because you know we want to have you on again. And as soon as you started talking about cryptocurrency, we just knew right away that's got to be what it's going about. You know, we had to have you back for that. The way that the, we're going to kind of go through this topic is I want to just talk briefly about some introductory subject matter so that we can kind of frame up Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as to how it might be useful for people and why you should care about it. Uh, so we'll talk about that uh, and then we'll get into some Bitcoin specific topics and get more in depth on specifically what Bitcoin is and a little bit of how it works and some cryptography and, and get into that vein. And then from there, we'll transition into some other topics that will kind of give us some outlook as to where we stand currently in the marketplace. What is the future of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? How can this help people? And, uh, and we'll just go from there. Right on. Sounds good. I'm ready to learn. How about you, Dylan? I'm ready to learn. I am not the expert and looking for some more uh, financial advice and then some history on what we got going on here. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys. So with that, uh, I want to first start out by introducing the topic of currencies and assets, because it's kind of important when we frame that up and when we get into the differences between Bitcoin and other altcoins, uh, the differences between currencies and assets. It, um, so just to start out with, basically, a currency is, is a medium for exchange of goods and services. So it can be it's a, it's a trusted way to store value or store effort basically um back in the day so like when you were you know 5000 bc and you needed some pots to store your your food in and you are a uh, blacksmith and the guy who makes pots doesn't need any anything blacksmithy you yeah. could maybe go to some kind of banker and you could sell him some items or you could barter and you could exchange your goods for some kind of currency which in the in the past could have been things like shells or or uh, ancient coins gold uh whatever the medium of exchange would be at the time and it, it doesn't even have to be something that is necessarily standard it, it just needs to be something that people generally consider valuable um so so that would be like a very, very high brief level explanation of currency. And yeah, so in other words, like obviously things like gold are, are valuable because of their rarity. So that that's, has an intrinsic value from them being hard to find. But things such as shells or something as simple as an IOU note is just the idea of the trust and saying this is worth X amount of hours of effort. And I, I hope to receive X amount of either goods or services in exchange for that. So even though exactly. over history, currency has taken many forms based on maybe its rarity or based on the power of you know people being able to support that currency, it all comes down to the idea we're all agreeing that this means I have this amount of things, whether it's goods, services, or wealth inherently. 
isn't so I want to interrupt real quick. Isn't the US dollar have its value or its weight because of spo supposedly supposedly gold at Fort Knox? Like it's it, this is reflective of that? No. No. Was that ever no. the case? It was something Yes. Initially yes. it was. Yeah, it was supposed to be yes. an IOU. They used to call them uh, silver and gold notes, but they would say that you this this one dollar equals this much of the share of the federal gold. So when you're trading this around, you're trading that amount of gold around, which actually dovetails perfectly into Bitcoin because no one could even afford a bar of gold, but you still have $20, which is equal to whatever 0 0.00, whatever percentage of the bar of gold, which is similar to a Bitcoin. You don't have to invest in a full bar of gold to have money, but this thing says, I own that much of that, which means I get this much. Yep. Absolutely. So up until I believe it's 1973, the, the, the dollar was backed by gold. Um, and we, you know, the, the, the U.S. dollar has been a world reserve currency since the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II. There was a big meeting and basically without going into too much detail, uh, they chose the U.S. dollar as the, essentially the world reserve currency most oil contracts, gold contracts, and, and uh, international trade is all settled in U.S. dollars. Uh, there's a lot of positives to that, and there's a lot of negatives to that, and it impacts everyone who uses dollars um, as the medium of their currency. Now, so since 1973, when we were taken off of the gold standard, we are considered what is called a fiat currency in the United States, which is true for a lot of the major currencies around the world, which means they're backed by essentially nothing but trust in the word of the United States of America or whatever inter, uh, whatever institution you are trusting. <clears throat> I mean, that is so uh, strange to hear it that way, but it makes sense. It is what currency is on its most essential level. I mean, the idea that you say, well, well this is bull crap. I mean, is my dollar supposed to be for this much gold? I should be able to go up to Fort Knox and get my gold nugget for what that's worth. But the way that currency works, it's almost completely equal. Yeah, say it's just numbers in a bank, but at a base level, it's numbers in a bank, but it's also the authority and will of the U.S. government. So maybe they don't have the gold to back it up, but if they can act as if they do and conduct business and taxation and maybe even wage war as if they do, it's almost the same as if they have the gold or not. It's the mutual understanding that we all agree, this is how much money we have. And the more people who agree on it, no matter if they agree by force or by understanding materials or by just wanting it, that is what the currency is. And I think that's gonna tie very well into what Bitcoin is and why it has so much value. Because the more people who agree it has value, as strange as it is, gives it value. And, and that will dovetail perfectly when we get into purchasing power of those dollars, because that is a huge part of the story of Bitcoin. So we all trust in the dollar. We say the dollar is valuable, but how much stuff can you buy with $1? That's something that is a moving target. And that's going to be a big topic of, of discussion today. So to help me to segue into exactly what you're talking about. Um, in, in relation to Bitcoin, the US dollar used to be backed by gold and now it's backed by trusts. So it's a proof of concept type of currency now. Is that what you'd call that? Or would you, because I know I'm not going to say the Bitcoin one, but what is the US dollar now as far as that goes? Because I know we're going to be talking about that. 
Um, I don't, like I don't know if it's considerably, I don't know exactly the term that you would use in the vein that you're trying to go. I know it's out there. I just, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I, I, I don't know what it would be. Okay. Proof yeah. of, proof of, uh, yeah. Faith in the U S government, I suppose. <laughs> but how does that compare to an asset? So thank you for asking. So, uh, we, we're going to now, we're going to kind of, uh, compare that to an asset. So. An asset is defined as a resource with economic value that an individual or entity owns with the expectation that it will provide future benefit. Gotcha. So in the context of currency versus asset, I don't really buy dollars because I expect them to go up. I park value in them with the expectation that I think I want to use it in the fairly near term, probably. Uh, whereas with an asset, you're going to buy that asset. You're not just holding it for fun. You buy it because you want it to go up in value or provide some utility to you or help fuel your lifestyle uh, or your grandkids' lifestyle. You, you don't buy an asset and then flip it to buy groceries. Um, That's interesting. I never saw it that way, that if, if you're having a immediate amount of value, you're going to want to put it in an asset. Uh, to for a long term because if you're not willing to flip it immediately like you said flipping a house to buy groceries for example doesn't make any sense the only reason why you want tangible currencies because you're going to be doing some immediate spending right otherwise if you have money sitting somewhere you want it to be appreciating absolutely and that's a that's a great way to put it next i want to go and talk about money supply and inflation because that's kind of the next big topic you know we've talked about like currency versus asset i want to talk a little bit about money supply and inflation um there's a couple, there's a bunch of ways you can de define money supply. M1 and M2 are like the most regarded, well-accepted definitions of money supply. Uh, M1 is what, what a lot of people will quote, um, which is like directly circulating money. So uh, in the United States, M1 monetary supply, for example, uh, in like 2005 timeframe was roughly like $1 trillion. Uh, in 2012-ish to like right now, after the housing crisis, uh, our money supply quadrupled, you know, a little less than quadrupled from a, a little under $1 trillion to about $4 trillion. Uh, and that was related to the bank bailouts and all that. And then the massive printing of money by the federal bank. Absolutely. Also known as quantitative easing, uh, where the federal reserve bank buys assets, um, uh, and, they're able to inject liquidity into the markets and help prop up markets uh, to basically try to prevent uh, catastrophic failures of our banking systems. Yeah, basically what you're saying is that, yeah, that the Federal Reserve is able to inject liquidity. In other words, it's starting to make, you know, what liquidity in other terms is moving money, right? So not a- Yeah, they're, uh, basically they're helping uh, the markets, well, the rosy, the the uh, rosy way to interpret yeah, the situation. Yeah, the cutesy economic way. Yeah, the things. way that they would tell you the, the the way that they would tell you what they're doing is they're helping make sure that the markets will function by making sure that there are buyers and sellers in the market because if you get too many sellers and not enough buyers, uh, you, you just will tank hard. So they'll basically start buying assets. So, Try and help the free fall and to stabilize because there's there's rules about markets can be 
close temporarily when they fall too far and things like that. So they kind of just help add stability to the markets when things are really gotcha. scary for everyone. So, right, yeah. um, and today we sit at around $7 trillion in circulating monetary supply. Now, why is that important? Oh, go ahead. You have a question, Joe? Okay. So why is the total amount of uh, money supply important? Well, so from literally 1776 to 2005, six timeframe, we had $1 trillion in circulation. And literally within the last, what, 15 years or so, we've 7X'd our total monetary supply. So we had $1 trillion in circulation during the founding of the country? No, no. Just over time, uh, we've slowly... Oh, I see. So between the founding of the nation and the yes. first Federal Bank of America, and then until then, it was only $1 trillion, and now it's yes. up to 7 and then that is majorly yes. multiplying it. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the only time in our history that we've really seen anything like this was back in World, the time of World War II when the government was printing tons of money to help fund Extreme the war. Circumstances to yeah, which, you know, actually gives me a bit of comfort because that tells me we were actually able to kind of unwind from that after the fact. Um, so that gives us a little hope here, maybe. But uh, so the reason why this is so important in, in the context of Bitcoin is because uh, imagine 15 years ago, uh, you had one one dollar. Well, that purchasing I power. That, I, I did have one dollar. <laughs> yeah. The purchasing power of that one dollar is now spread across seven dollars. So you, you know, inflation hasn't quite caught up to us yet from all that printing and there's a lot of reasons why we didn't experience heavy inflation from 2008. I mean, obviously it still affected us, but not to the severe level. It hasn't affected us seven times more than we were. No, generally no, but uh, there's a big reason why. And the main reason why from 08 to now, we haven't experienced massive levels of inflation is because a lot of the money that was printed then went to banks and those banks didn't do anything with it besides uh -huh. save themselves, which was the intent at the time, which is right. fine. So it never actually got distributed to people. And then it, therefore it wasn't really able to drive prices of consumer goods and things like that because it didn't get to the hands of the people. So today, however, with COVID-19, what we're experiencing is massive money printing with huge amounts of direct injections straight to the American people through things like expanded unemployment, uh, the stimulus checks, and the PPP loans. So, which the PPP loans were meant for which payroll. Have a, they have a very sexy name, but they're less sexy than they sound. <laughs> they're, the intention was good. The execution, we'll see over the next few years how the facts come out, but. Yeah, they could put that on the gravestone of the United States. Yeah, there's a chance that that the could... The intention was there, but the execution left something lacking. Yeah, yeah. So uh, because of, in, in this round of printing, the amount of money that's going to everyday Americans, you sh we, we should start to expect a pretty reasonable clip of inflation starting to kick in. And you've probably already started seeing that on, on certain goods like certain food products um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and things like that, that are in somewhat of a scarce supply. Now, some of that supply and not inflation, there's a 
big difference. Inflation is yeah. price rises outside of supply and demand issues. So, um, I think a, a good parallel to that, just, I mean, this is obviously an anecdotal thing, but it's pretty easy to understand the difference between supply and inflation there, which is when I got my license, it was about $4 for a gallon of gas and a bottle of Coke was a dollar. And now a bottle of Coke is a dollar 50 gallon of gas is like $2 and 10 cents. It's because the, because of OPEC and all that, basically the supply has gone up of oil. So, you know, you don't have to charge as much for it, but the supply of Coke has been constant the entire time. They, they make more to fill the demand, but inflation has gone to the point that now your dollar is not worth as much. You can't buy that same bottle of Coke. Or your That's grandma absolutely. saying, back in my day, a gallon of milk was five cents. Uh, that same conversation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. If anything, you can find milk much easier now. They have huge factory farms, but because the inflation is so much higher, the gallon of milk costs you a lot more than a nickel. Absolutely. And tying back a little bit to our discussion about assets and currencies, uh, gold has been historically used as both. Um, today, it's primarily used as an asset, uh, but it has been used as both over the course of history. Uh, so in, uh, getting back to like the value of our dollar with inflation and gold, mm -hmm. so the price of gold over decades, hundreds of years, Really, it, it, the price has not gone up. The, really? the value of our dollar has gone down. It takes more dollars to buy a bar of gold now because a dollar is not worth as much as it used to be. Okay, that, that's an important clarification. So it's not that the price of gold has gone up because gold has appreciated value. The value of a dollar has gone down, so it costs more to buy the same amount of gold. So it seems like, hey, now gold's worth more dollars. It's not worth more value, but it is worth more U.S. dollars because of inflation. That's right. And gold is settled in dollars, so it's the most pure. Like, it takes out things like uh, currency changes and stuff. Now, there can be, like, swings in gold where it outperforms and then underperforms uh, for various reasons. But, like, one way that you can kind of take that devaluation of the dollar out and look at it more pure is you can look at how many ounces of gold does it take to buy a house um because a house is That's also a it out. because a house is an asset that you know humans generally have valued over time in a similar way to gold and if you actually look at the charts the charts show that the gold to house ratio bounces we'll between put the charts up here if they exist I'll put them right up there. yeah it does exist i can pull one for you guys uh it, it's bounced between roughly 100 ounces of gold per home to roughly 400 ounces of gold per home. And this is just your median household that we're comparing. So, and by that, you mean that it's 100 ounces per home, meaning that that's how much the home is worth, not the, how much the household owns in assets. Yeah, so if, if it, it, it would have cost me roughly 100 ounces, if you were to convert the gold to the U.S. dollars and then yeah. look at how much the house cost at the time, Right. It would take roughly 100 ounces of gold in U.S. dollars to buy that house to roughly gotcha. 400. And that's pretty constant over a pretty long period of time. That sounds pretty useful to, you know, to make it uh, easier to kind of parse this thing out. Because if you don't have some kind of constant or some kind of control, it'd be difficult to, as you have the inflation, the supply, the inherent value versus, you know, value growing. If you have some kind of constant there, it's a little easier to pin these things down to something. And it seems like gold would be a good way of doing that. Just to clarify this, an ounce of weed 
in a bag weighs the same as an ounce of gold. Yes. 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 It, it might look much different, though. The gold, you'll barely be able to see it, and the weed will cover a whole bag, but they'll weigh exactly the same amount. Yes. Yep. <clears throat> um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, you could buy a house for uh, 100 I'm glad you brought up the term constant because uh, that's where things get, you know, I love thinking about this kind of stuff because it's, it's really uh, the frame of reference can tell you a lot about the value of something depending on the lens you're looking at it through. And some people use gold as their constant because of mm -hmm. its historical uh, intrinsic value that people have placed in it. And so they kind of consider it, and I, I kind of do too myself uh, as a very good way to measure different assets over a long period of time. There probably are better ways, but it's a pretty easy way you can do it. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, okay, so now getting into uh, introducing Bitcoin. So we talked about currency versus asset. We talked about inflation. We haven't related either of those topics to Bitcoin too much yet, but we will here in a little bit. But first we want to now kind of dive into Bitcoin itself and get into that topic in a little bit more detail. Like I said, we talked uh, currency versus asset, money supply and inflation, and the high level attraction for a lot of people to Bitcoin, it, there's several, uh, but it's portable, it's divisible, it can store value, it's secure, and it cannot be duplicated like uh, you can't forge it. So these are the properties of, you know, gold has a lot of these properties. It doesn't do it as well as Bitcoin, and we can talk about why later. But um, Bitcoin was engineered to be a digital version of gold, and they were very deliberate. Well, let's not yes. fire it past that. That's just, that was the ethos going into developing it. Yes. Like trying to make it a digital version of gold. So we already established that that's that constant. That's an interesting, yes. uh, I never heard of it that way. I just wanted to stop on that real quick. That's an interesting concept. Yeah, that's interesting that they actually went into it with the ethos that they're going to develop it as close to gold as they can. I thought that it, it was, they made it mostly for, you know, transferability and a digital form and try to have it more like secret and secure. But they actually went into it saying, we want to make it constant like gold. Yes. Yep. That's exactly right. So uh, the white paper of the whole concept behind the blockchain was uh, released by Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonym for someone that is anonymous that no one knows who it is. It is yeah, a we don't know who that is. It's not a real person. Yeah. yeah, it's it's probably a group of people, most likely, but I don't think anybody knows. I mean, no one publicly knows. Uh, really? So this paper was published, and it's actually not a hard read. If you want to read it, it's only like seven to nine pages or something like that. So if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more about the actual history and the intention of Bitcoin, you should read that paper. It's pretty easily found online. Um, so, so it was designed to be a surrogate digital gold that does pretty much everything that gold does, but 10 times to like infinity times better than gold does it. Uh, it's more divisible, it's more portable, it's more secure, it will be way more valuable, in my opinion, in the future. Um, so, and it cannot be duplicated uh, in any way. Um, maybe a seventh or an eighth point, isn't it? Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it a global currency, which means it's independent of governments? 
Great point. It is fully decentralized and it's owned by nobody. Uh, the network itself is owned by nobody besides those who support it. So um, you have people mining Bitcoin, uh, which is basically confirming transactions all over the world. Uh, they're privately owned for the most part. I'm sure some governments, I mean, I know gov some governments are mining their own Bitcoin to store for themselves, but you also have hundreds of thousands of people mining Bitcoin to improve the strength and reliability of the entire network. Uh, the next big point that I want to touch on, because it's a huge part of the whole thesis of, goal of uh, Bitcoin, is the uninflatable aspect of it. So uninflatable, I, not yes. very balloon like, not very balloon like <laughs> the dollar is like a blimp. And <laughs> uh, I don't know what the opposite of a blimp is, but this is the opposite of a blimp. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, Bitcoin is uninflatable in the fact that so as we as we mentioned, uh, Bitcoin was designed to be digital gold. And one of the main reasons that gold over time has been able to retain its value and trust with people is because of how scarce it is. And you can't just go jam a shovel on the ground and find 10 bars of gold. It takes massive amounts of energy to produce very small amounts of gold. So yeah, like you said before, the scarcity is inherent to its value. That's why people use it in even back in ancient times to signify the amount of work in the currency saying that it's hard for me to prove to you that I just worked a field for 10 hours, but this little thing that you can't get tells me that I did do that because you can't just find it in the road. But it yep. wasn't so That's scarce that it had no value. Like um, some things that are hard to sell, like, like meteors and asteroids or whatever it is, like they have a lot of value, but it's like a weird combo of being available enough, but also not available enough. Are they hard to sell? Meteors? Yeah. Uh, I, they're not. Um, there's a big market for them just because they can't contain rare a lot of metals and rare, uh, rare elements. Yeah. Um, okay. And just the fact that they, that, that they are what they are makes them cool. So they're not hard to sell, but not everybody. That's not, we don't. If there's not in a history, lot of we didn't base in. our we didn't base our currency yeah. off of um, yeah. Well, we could, yeah, yeah. The rarity of the meteor is more valuable than the metals that it contains, right? If you had if you could buy the recipe of a meteor, it would cost less than buying a meteor because the meteor came from outer space, so it's inherently more valuable because you have to find it there. If you and not everybody buy, like, can get it. Right? Yeah. You, yeah. you just buy like you know like two grams of iron, a gram of zinc. Like you could build a meteor in your yard, but it wouldn't be nearly as valuable as one that came from the cosmos and landed in your yard so the, the value is there because of the rarity not just because of the materials there within i have to imagine like things like lithium weren't as valuable back during ancient times they weren't shiny and they couldn't you know you found them gold isn't very useful back then it was more of like a signifier of wealth because of how difficult it is to get it i have to imagine if you had a gram of lithium back then it was not nearly as valuable as gold but now lithium is a hugely important resource in the world and people are uh, dying Joe, to get it quite literally we'll, we'll see because here's here's some gold right here real piece of gold um was back in egyptian times it was ornate only the 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 you know wealthy and and you know famous people had it but it also is highly conductive and that's not a conversation we're going to get into right now so let's get back to andrew 
No, no, no. Because <laughs> you brought this up in the last podcast too, and that it actually has all these inherent properties that are, make it better as a conductor, which I could listen to because maybe it, it is better conductor. I don't know that much about you know electricity and how that works, but you have to imagine it's not better at conducting than copper for the price. It might be better at conducting, but you'd only have to use that in very, very, you know, specific circumstances. Like they use gold to plate the visors of astronauts' helmets because it's so good at blocking out cosmic rays. But there's no reason why you ever want to make a helmet out of that because the price is so prohibitive. So maybe mm-hmm. gold is a great conductor. It's just there's no reason to build a circuit board out of it because it's so expensive. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like, for example, you can use aluminum, copper, silver, or gold to make a wire. It just depends on uh, how important it is that it be the best conductor possible. If you're wiring your house, you can use aluminum or copper. Uh, you don't really, you can just make it a little bigger of a wire if you need more amperage that you need to transmit. And it's not that cost prohibitive. But uh, if you're building a supercomputer and every nanosecond counts, you probably want to go with gold or some other more exotic material because it really matters to the system. Like in your smartphone where there's rare earth metals because it's so small that it needs to be crazy conductive per, per the, the amount that you're using. I get it. Yeah. Like lithium or platinum or things like that. Yeah. Yep. So, so... Bitcoin is uninflatable. Why do I say that? So why do you say that? I was wondering. <laughs> so uh, when they designed Bitcoin, Satoshi, I'm just going to refer to him as Satoshi, assume it's a him and refer to him as Satoshi. He decided we're never going to have more Bitcoin than 21 million ever. No matter what happens, we will never have more than 21 million Bitcoin. There's not currently 21 million Bitcoin in circulation. So as of today, it is inflating a little bit and we'll get into some, we'll get into that deeper here later in the show. But uh, so, so miners right now, they mine, they, they are confirming transactions and they're getting paid for their effort and they're getting paid in Bitcoin. So when, when miners are doing their thing, they're being issued Bitcoin for their work at no more than 900 Bitcoin a day as of today. So today, starting in May of 2020 until probably April of 2024, roughly, every day there will be roughly 900 Bitcoin that are mined every day. Um, there's approximately 18,500,000 Bitcoin that have been mined since the beginning of Bitcoin. So yeah, when you talk about Bitcoin mining, that was one of the biggest things that was perplexing to me. I mean, you start hearing about Bitcoin in the popular culture. It's how me and Dylan probably heard about it. You hear about, hey, there's this internet database of uh, money where it's worth more and more every month. And if you want to make more of it, you just have to buy a computer and you get to mine it in your yard, like you're digging for gold or oil, something like that. Not so simple. I figured it wasn't like that initially, but I wanted to understand about more of why that was. And the more I looked into it, the harder it was to understand until people were simplifying it more. Like they keep going into more and more of the ideas of it. So Bitcoin itself is like what Andrew said. It's not centralized. So there's no governing body that's trying to regulate it. And it's basically only held up by all different kinds of people, which is what gives it the stability that it has at all. And the rules that have been set up, like Andrew said, only a certain amount can be reached because the more you make, the, the less it's valuable. 
So I wanted to go into why it's called a cryptocurrency so that we can explain what Bitcoin is and then it can tie in pretty good with what, how it works financially, which is what Andrew was talking about. So why it's called cryptocurrency isn't just because it's magical and cool like the Chupacabra or the Bigfoot or any other kind of crypto geology. It's mostly because of cryptography, which just is old Latin that means like you're making a puzzle writing, like you're trying to make things more complicated than they are, you know, like calligraphy writing. So even back in ancient, uh, you know, Egypt and Mesopotamia, they all had these kind of weird codes and things you're going to try and transmit data. The worst thing you could do in a military standpoint is hand over a letter and your enemy gets it and knows everything about you. It's over. So the most famous example of early cryptocurrency, not cryptocurrency, cryptography rather. People are Can to I guess? Codes. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're talking modern? Uh, no, I'm talking, sort about, of... I'm talking about the, the earliest example that, that's famous. So people might have I'm... written in code, but this one is the earliest famous example. Are we talking about the Enigma machine? We sure are. Not yet. Fucking getting... knew it, but we're getting yeah, you there. You know we're okay, getting right. there. You know we are. Yep. You all right. Yeah. Secret, yeah. Secrets of the secret Germans. You know I have to do it to them. I could not bring up mm -hmm. the Enigma machine in this one. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so the earliest one we know about is uh, it's called Caesar's Code. So, you know, from a Julius Caesar back in uh, the Roman Empire, when you would write his letters in his correspondences, especially because the empire is so large, the interceptions increase. You can easily steal a letter. As soon as you know what they mean, it's over. So he started trying to make uh, his letters in the Caesar's code, which means that every letter is transferred three letters over. So if you're writing A, B, C, you're writing D, E, F, but you'd be writing the same thing. Pretty simple little code. If you figure it out, you could translate a letter in 10 minutes because as soon as we know what the letters mean, that's it. But back then it was unheard of for the massive scale. So you, all you have to do is change a couple of letters and your enemy would take your note and they go, I don't know what the fuck this means it is useless. But if you knew the code and you have the key, in other words, you could translate the entire letter and understand it easily. And that directly correlates to, to cryptocurrency because it's the fact that you can encode all this information so that people can't break into it. And that mutual understanding of it being secure is what gives it its value. So, you know, as time goes on, more and more people start to make more and more complex codes. I mean, you can imagine into the enlightenment, people start to make complex codes using math and using equations to try to make things a little more simple. If you can just change every letter or flip it upside down, you can solve that in a day. You want to make something that cannot be solved by anyone ever, if you're lucky, but it still has to be encoded by the people who receive the message. So it can't be totally impossible. It can't be all gibberish. It has to be able to be translated. So it's almost like scrambling it and descrambling it as you get in. And like Dylan said, the most famous example is Pretty close into the 20th century, people start to realize that the best way to encrypt information is not to just use, you know, smart ideas and writings, it's to try to use mathematics. And the best way to employ mathematics is to use machines, because machines, <clears throat> they can't think and act the same way we do, but they're really, really good at crunching numbers, and they can do equations that people couldn't do in days. So they start building machines to encrypt the information for them. So a usual correspondence letter that Caesar might send is now a letter that the Luftwaffe is trying to send into Africa and they don't want to be intercepted. They start to build machines that can do this for them and the most famous of which and the best at it 
is what Dylan said, which is called the Enigma machine. The Enigma machine is just a encryption device, the same as anything if you just change the letters and similar to now when you're visiting Google and signing in, <clears throat> you're undergoing the same procedure of a super encoded message translated through and understood on the other side of it. So with the Enigma machine, they did this by taking wires and plugging them into different sections of the machine. So you type in the letter A and it comes up. B, for example, you connected the A to the B wire. So when you hit A, B comes up. But the more complex you can make the system, the more difficult that you can get to be decoded. So they have three different rotors in it and they would spin them and time them up with all these wires in between them. And depending on what day of the week it was, what code you had, that was how it came out. So you had to do multiple levels of setting this thing up to be able to decode it and encode it. Even people who were part of the German high command, if they didn't have their Enigma machine up to date, they couldn't even encode their own messages. So the reason why encryption works that well at that point is that you could take all day long and try to have a guessing of what people need to say. But if you can make it so complex that humans can't understand it, you need a machine to decrypt it at that point. That's exactly what they did. Many mathematicians and computer engineers from the times before computers were even a thing. We're talking about a bunch of famous people from Belgium, from Germany, as well as from Britain, and the most famous of which being Alan Turing, who is a modern math genius. Unfortunately, he passed. We should probably do a podcast on him one day. He's a fascinating guy. But a lot of people call him the father of modern computing. You must they must have came up at some point during uh, your education at Purdue, right, Andrew? Alan Turing. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nah, yeah, no, that was on me. That was on me. I expect that. Anyways, this guy basically, I mean, he blows, he blows my fucking mind because I don't understand much about computers whatsoever, even though I sound like I do now. I don't understand anything about computers. And this guy was building computers in the day before computers existed. I mean, talking about logic puzzles, math equations, coming in and taking those concepts of math and having to make them into a machine with transistors, wires, circuits. He was trying to take this idea and implement it into modern science. And without his... Uh... Oh, it's all good, guys. <laughs> My, uh... so Alan Turing was one of the main people in charge of building these early computers at the time they started naming them computers because they had the computation ability of multiple people all combined i mean people used to be hired as computers before the term was used for an object and they would do math problems and they would do work and logarithmic you know formulas as if they were trying to solve things now we have computers for that it's thanks to the likes of people like that and because of that early days of encrypting and decrypting, whether it's military use or you know personal use, that is the predecessor to what we have now in cryptocurrency. So encrypting information works the same as it does then. It's just trying to make it as difficult as possible to take one piece of information and translate it unless you are the proper authority. Kind of like giving someone a key to your house. You want to make sure that it's the person you trust and you don't want to accidentally hand over your key otherwise. You want to make it so unique to your own doorknob that no one else could get it, but not so unique that no one can have it but you. You want to be able to share it somehow. 
And it's difficult to share that responsibility with someone you don't even know. I mean, when you sign on to Facebook, Instagram, Google Mail, you're giving them access to, to your computer right away. And obviously a large companies like that, you, there's a degree of trust that they wouldn't want to break with you, but you're opening up either way. And the thing is both of you are transferring keys without seeing each other's keys, which is kind of a weird process that you have to do in cryptocurrency. So that's how you can solve it so easily within um, cryptocurrency itself. That was the big question I had. Why can't someone steal your Bitcoin wallet? People are hacked all the time, their bank accounts stolen, their information stolen, social security information. How come they can't hack your Bitcoin account much like they could hack anything else? I mean, that would be my main concern. If I have all these you know, Bitcoins in my wallet, if I can get hacked just the same as my email account, I'm gonna lose all the money I invested in. It makes no sense to do that. And that's where the encryption part comes in. It's so difficult to break Bitcoin wallets that even people who have their wallets can't get into them. I mean, Dylan and I brought this up last night, the idea that people who actually have a, a key to their wallet, if you lose the key, if you lose that code, those series of digits, you can't get in your wallet and that's it. It's just not gonna happen. There's one person in particular, I don't know if you heard this guy, Andrew, he invested pretty early on in 2016 and apparently he didn't care enough to remember that he was invested in it because he lost his key. And now his Bitcoin is worth about $12 million. He's right here and he's a nice looking lad. And I believe wow. his name is um, Stefan Thomas. That sounds like the guy, yep. I think. Yep, yeah. definitely pull up Stefan Thomas and his uh, his his smile and eyebrows we'll pop up. up here. Very crazy eyebrow situation. And um, that's him, Stefan Thomas. And 7,002 Bitcoins. Wow. So how much did you say it was worth now, Andrew, roughly? He lost the slip of paper with the information to unlock his 7,002 Bitcoins which was at the time 180 million euros, and he has two so, chances to get his password yeah. right again. We're uh, we're at we're at thirty eight thousand dollars right now. So <clears> for one now. Bitcoin, yeah. So so uh, thirty eight thousand times uh, seventy five oh two. So that's uh, two hundred and eighty five million dollars. So a quarter of a billion dollars. This guy misplaced. That's a pretty wow, big. Deal. That's way more. Than see that's see this IOU. That's a Lamborghini. You're going to want to hold on to that one. <laughs> <laughs> For real. I mean, seriously, the amount of money facing it, but that has to do with the encryption of it. You get, uh, as far as I understand, 10 chances to put in your key before you're locked out for good because they're trying to inhibit brute force hacking. So brute force hacking is basically the idea of guessing a password as many times as you can, as fast as you can. So think of like putting in luggage numbers. One 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 doesn't work. One 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 two doesn't work. One 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 three. But times the amount of digits you couldn't understand in your mind, you need a super powerful computer to do it. But it can be done. And part of the design of Bitcoin, like Andrew was saying, is try to make it secure. And that means that people can't just brute force hack into your account and take it all out. And that's why this person, unfortunately for them, they only have two more chances to guess their code right, and if not, they're out. And they're not going to. What do a it fucking game to play, like. You know, years ago, you're like, yeah, I'm just a college kid and I have like no money. And then all of a sudden you do this and you realize you're worth like, you know, $250 million all of a sudden. And you have two, ch it's a, it's a, it's an episode. Of, it's a, it's a volume of the, of Saw, the movie. 
just just more mentally fucked like if it could get worse than saw it's actually this you work at a gas station and you have 250 million dollars but you have two chances to guess a password that you think you might have made in 2015 or whatever it is and i I really would rather not have the money than to have that hanging over my head that i had two chances to get it i mean just don't even tell me i have it at that point i'd be mentally anguished so it's hilarious I i will point out right now uh that is not really super prevalent anymore. It depends how you store your Bitcoin. There's really, really secure ways to store your Bitcoin, like cold storage, which is where you basically store it on something similar like a USB that you can buy from a vendor or whatever. And that's essentially unhackable. And they've made it to where you can more easily recover your money now uh, through different procedures. But it depends on how you do it. Um, you know, they, you can also store, you can store your money on an exchange, which is not very secure at all. It's pretty much the worst way you can store your money. Then there's something, there's things like in the middle, which would be something like a hot wallet, what they call it, which is where you don't have it on an exchange, but you do still have it somewhere that's online. So like technically it could still get stolen, but the only way really that you're going to get hacked, like Bitcoin is not going to get hacked. Your right. wallet can get hacked if someone hacks into your email and somehow or key logs your password into your account online and then they just send the money to themselves or something because they were able to breach some poor security that you had in your own coin. But there's ways that you can do it where you will, I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, it's basically impossible for someone to steal them. <clears throat> Yeah, so to, to wrap it up, I just wanted to say like what how I understand how how blockchain works and why it, um, there's any you know inherent value in being part of the process there. So we already covered why encryption it gets so detailed. I mean, one last point that I could see is that in a particular way to encrypt things is to make it a one-way uh, equation. So for example, one plus two plus three plus four is ten. But if you start with 10 and you say what integers got you there, it's a lot harder to parse that out once you already get there. So a lot of code is written. I mean, that's the simplest way I can describe it. I don't understand the full like, complexity, but it's like one-way equations so that you can only be transferred one way. It's harder to parse it out. And that was what makes it so complicated. So so part of the reason why um, Bitcoin is still running, I, that was something that was so confusing to me. I, I said, how, if it's not centralized and people aren't uh, hired to do this, why are people to maintain this process whatsoever? And that has to do with Bitcoin mining, which is what Andrew brought up earlier. So Bitcoin mining is a bit of a misnomer. It does describe how you're gaining Bitcoin that way, but it's not like you're searching for it and gaining it. You can't just be putting hours in and getting it just for the sake of it. The the simplest way that I saw it as uh, is this. So you and your friends all go to a poker night. Let's say the three of us go play poker together. Uh, We walk in there. The thing is we forgot all of our wallets and no one has poker chips. We only have a deck of cards. Yeah, three notebooks, three pens, maybe a couple of calculators, if it's me, I'm gonna need some help there, and the cards, and you're there. So the idea is that we can play poker the whole time um, by writing down every single transaction the whole time, but we need to all write it down together. That way, every time a round is over, we can all correlate and see, what did you get? What do you get? As far as I know right now, I have 800, Andrew has 1,000, Dylan has 1,200. Maybe Dylan says, oh, no, 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 I have 1,300. And then Andrew confers with me and says they have the same thing. It's part of verifying what transactions are actually occurring. So between the three of us, we can probably work it out before I pull my six-year out and call you guys a bunch of cheaters. 
But on a massive scale, you're going to need a lot of people doing that and keeping track of those transactions to do it. You don't have a centralized bank. People who are Bitcoin miners, in other words, are people who are dedicating their computing power. You have to have a very powerful computing system to do this because think about all the transactions of all Bitcoin all over the world. Keeping track of all those is difficult, but it's basically the same idea on a massive scale inside a computer. You're writing down every single transaction and every time one happens, everyone's confirming with each other saying, we all agree this happened, let's move on. We all agree this happened. And the amount of data that can be stored in one block, as it's called, which is a section of transactions, is called a block. There is a finite amount so that we don't run on too far. After that is changed up, a new block is started and the person who has the best or most accurate depiction of what the true ledger is, if the person who's been paying the most attention to our poker game, that person is rewarded with Bitcoin for the very fact that their ledger is so accurate based on the other ledgers of the rest of the world. So if you have a super inaccurate ledger or your computer is not working properly, you'll never earn any Bitcoin at all. People earn Bitcoin or fractions of Bitcoin, as Andrew said, just from participating in this process you know, and doing it well you're gaining Bitcoin slightly just for taking place in it. But if you can nail that thing properly and start that block, that's when you start making real money. Unfortunately, like Andrew said, there's only a certain amount you can make. You can't actually exceed that, but most people will never make that much anyways. So that was the, the closest I could see to, to understand like why blockchain works, what Bitcoin mining is and what the ledger is. We have to all agree on this process. Most people who invest in Bitcoin, aren't going to have the computing power to be able to keep that transaction ledger going. People who do, if you want to invest in it, go ahead. You can make Bitcoin that way. But a significant part of that is the computing power and also what Andrew said, which is the actual power draw you're having in because the amount of energy it takes to process that properly and consistently might be prohibitive to the actual amount of money you're making on it based on how you're doing it. But I just wanted to go into that just so we understand like what cryptocurrency was and why it works because there's multiple different kinds of cryptocurrencies, but they all work similarly to say that this is why it's decentralized. This is why um, it's difficult to steal and to hack into. And it's also why um, it's so stable because they had the initial idea of setting it up that way. Like you said, to try and make it whatever digital gold rather than just being this wild experiment of people claiming to have money and not having that money. But there are a lot of, of, of examples of, since there's thousands of different types of cryptocurrency of people who literally pull it right out of their ass and then create the same system around it, but it's just valued way, 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 way less. And we could do it today, right? Yeah. So like Bitcoin is fully open source. So you can literally copy and paste the code of Bitcoin and you can like try to duplicate it and you can run it. Um, you're going to have to convince a network of people that it's worth doing more than the network that's built around Bitcoin. That's where the so, value comes, right? The trust. Much like yes. now, we're not on the gold standard anymore. We're on the trust standard. Bitcoin yep. as well. And the ledger is 100% public, too. So that's one thing I find pretty cool about it. For one thing, it's traceable, and it can be re-verified if ever needed. But the other thing is you can also pull lots of data out of it because all transactions are public. So like every day I will kind of look around and I'll peruse some of the sources of data that I look at. And you can actually see like if there's been large transactions that have been moved from one wallet to another, you can see if they've been moved from a wallet that's been uh, inactive for like years and, and it got moved to an exchange, for example, uh, you know, you can kind of, uh, 
guess that if someone held Bitcoin for a super long period of time and then they move it to an exchange, it's not because they want to keep holding Bitcoin. They probably are going to sell it. Why else would you hold it and then move it to an exchange? You're going to sell it or exchange it for something else. So you can actually draw a lot of uh, conclusions about Bitcoin and the direction it's going just looking at the public ledger. So speaking of the public ledger and everything like that, so historically the first of its kind was Bloomberg Terminal um, for obviously trading stocks and things like that in the 90s and 2000s. Um, does Bitcoin have its own like interface, so to speak, or are you using things like Cash App and uh, other uh, border Coinbase. basically Coinbase's um, to do this? Because you mentioned you log in and, and look at th look at it like it's a stock. Yeah. So for me, uh, with my background, I don't know a ton about. I'm sure back in the day, you were probably accessing some network that's like the base layer network, but today your average user, they're going to use a public exchange that's a user interface that's going to be pretty easy to work with, uh, especially compared to what it would take to do something that's like on the base layer, which I don't even know if it's possible to do it anymore. I'm sure it is. There's guys out there that are like OG crypto guys that know way more about this stuff than I do. Uh, they could probably answer that like really well. Um, but your yeah, average all, guy, hey, none of us are experts on this show. Me and Dylan are constantly saying we're no experts. And just because you're our residential expert doesn't mean you have to be an expert either. Yeah. So and I focus on, I try to focus on the economics. I don't, I try, I've listened to a, enough smart people that know what they're talking about, about Bitcoin that I trust right. in the technology. I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to really teach people about the technical workings of it too well. From what you see, um, this isn't related to what you just said, but like since you log in and you see transactions from wallet to wallet and things that are like, oh, hey, cool, that's fun. Um, this Satoshi fellow uh, or group of people, um, did, does, is he still, he or she still active on here? So Satoshi has wallet addresses that contain huge amounts of Bitcoin that have been inactive for probably a decade now. Uh, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So, so go ahead. I was going to say, so that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Um, so, so if this, this, this guy, girl decides he wants to change, uh, you know, kind of like the, what people think of what's behind the U S currency and the Rothschilds mm. and their whatever else um, they can manipulate where things go. If all of a sudden Satoshi puts his thing, puts his shares or coins in exchange people shit their pants? So that would be true for two reasons. Reason number one would be purely emotionally, like people would freak out because Satoshi is moving Bitcoin. So holy shit, what does he know that He's we don't know? That, that must change the market immediately if that ever happened, right? Just I would imagine. That's what I'm would, saying, yeah. It would be a huge event if someone yeah. saw him moving large amounts of crypto, especially to a place that could be uh, sold. So yeah, that would probably be a big deal. Not like it would kill the market, but it would definitely put a huge sense of like probably concern out there. So the purely emotional fact, but then the second fact would be pure like market physics, which is he's got enough Bitcoin that if he wanted to dump it all at once, he could definitely crash the price at least short term uh, because the supply of Bitcoin would far outweigh what the uh, instant demand would be at the time, most likely. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, because he's I'm... holding a big, 
as you say, he's holding a big uh, share, let's say, um, of this of this pizza pie right here. He's got a top left corner, let's say, for example. And that's slice. over here, though. So the pie is actually this big, but he's got his own size. And if, oh, he, dude. If, yes. if he injects that into that major one, then those shares are going to go down in, in value and everybody's going to have be able to buy more of them when they're cheap. So, uh, right? I'm, yeah, so that's a good point. And we can actually, I'm going to expand on that a little bit, which is, so you brought up a good point. It's like, it, you know, it's all part of the whole, but here's the thing. It's not moved for a long period of time. Well, there's, you can actually track how many Bitcoin addresses are holding Bitcoin that they mined the Bitcoin, but never sold it ever. So it originated in these wallets and it was literally never sold. And so there's two, well, I'm sure there's lots of ways that that can happen, but there's two cool ways that you can talk about, which one would be the person mined it, they believe in it, they don't want to sell any because they want to hold it till it goes up higher in value. The second way is that they lost their Bitcoin and they can't access it anymore. So the actual available circulating supply, even though technically we've mined like 18.5 million Bitcoin, the, there's a big debate over how many coins have been lost over the decades or well, less than two decades, over the decade and two years that Bitcoin has been alive. So, you know, there's less circulating supply than we think. Uh, I think estimates are somewhere around like three to five million roughly Bitcoins that will probably never move again. So they're essentially not even part of the supply. Yeah, that is wild that there could be that much like, in other words, like dead currency that is still part of the system is factored in, but it's never going to be in, 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 a part of any transaction in the future. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want, before you went on to explain the future of cryptocurrency, I wanted to tag back to that point too, because it really brought to mind my like spark of understanding encryption. And it's what Dylan said, which is like, well, if he or she wants to decide to inject that money, would they do it? That makes me think is, well, first of all, obviously, is it one person? It's probably a collective of people that they're able to develop this. If there's one person would be even more insane, but maybe it is. I wonder if there is more of like a, like an encryption type of move to this, where it's like a double blind idea, where it's, this is this part of Bitcoin. Satoshi isn't a person. It's an idea within the encryption of the system. For example, the internet is an actual, it, it works like Bitcoin does. It's, it's weird for us to think, but it works on a global level because of multiple servers all working together. No one runs the internet. There's no king of the internet. There's no governing body. It's the use of it around the world, but it still acts like a service, like electricity. So there actually is 10 key holders globally that can, if the time ever comes, hard reset the World Wide Web. And it takes all 10 of them um four of them in america is like one in singapore one in china like it, they're all spread out but and most of them in america because we you know we have to hoard our keys but none of them are allowed to know each other and you wouldn't even know uh where the other ones live besides their country of origin until you until the process starts and it still takes all 10 people to do it and it reminds me of maybe something like that where it's satoshi is locked into the system where Maybe it's not just one person. Maybe it's a group of 10, 15 people and they don't know each other for their own safety and for the financial safety and stability of the currency. Maybe if one person is Satoshi and they could destabilize it to that degree, it would be very bad for the currency. And maybe it's better off to say, for example, you need two keys to launch the new. There should be more than one person in, involved in this process. And if they're smart enough to come up with the 
the structure of Bitcoin to work at this point, I would imagine they're pretty much smart enough to think of Satoshi shouldn't be able to just drop all the Bitcoin in one second to change the whole game up, especially because they know that person is the creator of it. Maybe it's maybe I'm Satoshi and I don't know you are too until you know some occurrence comes up. Maybe Bitcoin is crashing or some kind of you know pull the ripcord circumstance. I don't know. Do you think that could be possible? I think that's a really interesting take, um, and I find that super interesting. I actually didn't really I didn't know about the ten keys uh, to reset the internet thing. So it, it's insane. Uh, you should look at it. it's really fucking weird. But they remind me of that. Nuts. You don't want everyone to know they have that power, but you still need someone to be able to do that when the time comes. Yeah, I I I bet you're right. I mean, either there's one person, which I find kind of unlikely, uh, that clearly like. You know, this is his baby, so he's not going to try and kill his baby. So, and and I, I mean, I like to think that he did this with some um, level of like wanting to help the world. I don't think this was this, well. First of all, it, this was born out of the housing crisis, so like that. Uh, that is an interesting point to put on. We haven't mentioned that yet, and I didn't even know that. Yeah. So housing crisis, thinking of how can we better run uh, currency it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, cryptocurrency, the idea of cryptocurrencies has been around for longer than that. But uh, from my understanding, like Bitcoin itself and the group or person who created it was primarily like motivated after seeing carnage after like the housing crisis and thinking like, how can we protect ourselves from things like this in the future? We can't trust our government to do it for us. We need something that is uncorruptible. And so then they develop Bitcoin. So uh, I bet you're probably right. I mean that whoever or whatever group is, is controlling it, that they, you know, they have an interest in ensuring that the safety of the network can be maintained. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, what do you say, like double blind study, plausible deniability. It's more secure if I don't know who I have to get the information from than knowing it itself. It's like, you can make someone as hardened against interrogation or torture as you want, but if the person really doesn't know the information, there's no chance of giving it up. So the more deniability, the more blind you can put people in power of it, the better secure it can be. And the way I see Bitcoin, it's so secure and so well-maintained. I can't imagine that they would leave it all up to one trigger if they could, unless Satoshi really is um, so altruistic and so understanding. I figure someone who's that smart to go into it, even if they do have that mentality to try to help the world be better in that way, they would probably give the keys up themselves if they really believe that. They have some candidates. There's, there's the, obviously, if you go on Reddit, there's a whole host of people who they think is the person. Um, but there is one guy named Nick Zabo, um, who kind of lines up with all the first papers that were put on white on on Bitcoin, and specifically one pre-Bitcoin that was called like Gold. I think I read it's Gold. Uh, Bitgold. You wrote a paper on that. He's yeah. worth looking into. He definitely looks yeah. like an alien. Zabo is might be Satoshi. They think yeah. that if there is anybody, it's that guy. And make sure really? you pull up a good picture of him. His eyeballs are black. What is his name again? <laughs> Nick Zabo, S-Z-A-B-O. Nick Zabo, black eyeballs, thin hair. <laughs> yep, him and then I hear people joke around about uh, Max Kaiser. I don't know if you've heard his name, but he actually, I believe, holds the patent for the very first crypto, like digital currency, not not really related to the Bitcoin movement, like, yeah. way predates in the 80s and i believe he sold that patent he sold it to some bank i can't remember the bank and they actually use that technology still to process transactions 
And that same guy, Max Kaiser, he's like a pretty well-known Bitcoin personality. Like he's active on Twitter and YouTube and he's been like following Bitcoin and telling people to buy it since 2011 when it was a dollar, when it was trading at a dollar. Guy's a beast. <laughs> That's foresight. He does sound like a, uh, a Bond villain though. My name is Maximilian Kaiser. I'm yes. Kaiser. I'm on the Bitcoin currency provision. Let's see. Where are we today? So Bitcoin has a rough market cap of uh, $600 billion, which uh, is basically the total price uh, or the price of the current sale of Bitcoin times the shares outstanding. So 18 0.5 million times the current price, you'll get something pretty close to $600 billion. So I'm sorry to just double back on that. So market cap meaning that you can't go above that amount based on the current amount of Bitcoin? No, uh, market cap is the, it's the theoretical value. If, if every person sold all their Bitcoin at the current market price, it would be valued at $600 billion. Oh, okay, thank you. Thanks for the clarity. It's theoretic. I mean, it's not possible to do that in practice, obviously. Right, but you have to use that as your like bar to yardstick. Yeah, yardstick. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So uh, the the market cap is about six hundred billion dollars. Uh, the price is, as we noted, floating around about thirty eight thousand um, dollars. Over the course of twenty twenty, uh, we were bouncing around ten thousand to. $12,000. We dipped above and below, especially during the coronavirus, like March uh, timeframe. And then uh, we started treading up towards like 15, then 16, then 17, then 18, then 19. And we were like, go, stuck go, in. go, go, yeah. go. <laughs> 19,000, like 900 something dollars was like the previous all time, or maybe it was like 19,7 or something, it was like the previous all time high back in 2017. Uh, when we had that huge bubble up to twenty thousand dollars, and then it busted down to like yeah, 3, when it got to ten grand, I was like, "This is unbelievable! I can't believe it." Yeah, yeah, And then when it did crash, I was like, "Oh yeah, see, there you go. That's what happens yep. to Bitcoin." Tulip bulb mania, you know, it's never, it's dead. Yep, and so. We were bouncing right around at nineteen thousand for a little while, and everyone—I mean, I was watching the charts like all the time. Like you must have been pulling your fucking hair out. I can't. Oh imagine. man, it was. And then finally, one day at work, it was like eight thirty in the morning, and I'm watching the price, and it just freaking busted through, and it ran like all the way up to twenty-three thousand, and then from there, within like a month, so that was in December. Within a month, it hit forty-two thousand dollars, and we just had a pretty decent-sized correction down to like thirty. It was like a thirty percent correction down to about thirty thousand dollars, and now we're around thirty-eight thousand. So that's where we stand today. Now, I'm sure a lot of your viewers might be wondering: it's already thirty-eight thousand dollars. Did I miss the boat? How much higher can it go? Yeah. I don't want to put my yeah, money. Yeah, like I already, it already went up. It went down. Went up again. Now it's at thirty-eight. I mean, if I want to invest now, it's too late. I missed the. It's like investing in Apple in 85. I don't want to invest in Apple now. I mean, their share no. price is so high. I mean, how much higher can it get? I mean, it's nothing but bust from here on out, right? Why should I yeah, invest so, in Apple now? Absolutely. So are we looking at Apple like 1995 or are we like, did we already blow through 95 or are we at like 2020? So um, let me give you some a little bit of background now. This is where things get a little bit more opinionated, but it's all based on fact, pure fact. So um, this whole podcast wanna, is opinion based on facts. So let it that's rise. That's true. I, I try to I try to <laughs> stick to facts, but we're, we're going to get a little more into you know some 
market observation and just to kind of give you guys an idea of where we think we stand in the grand scheme of things. So uh, I want to touch on I want to touch on the supply and demand of uh, Bitcoin and talk about halvings because it's very important dynamic to the market of Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin goes through uh, four year cycles uh, based on uh, the supply, the, the, the uh, daily supply of Bitcoin. So when they designed Bitcoin, um, they basically said, okay, there's a certain amount of Bitcoin that we can mine every day. And every four years, we're going to cut that amount. And it's actually per block, which is every 10 minutes. So it's 6.25. A block is every 10 minutes. Wow, that's good. Yes, a block is every 10 minutes. Uh, and you get, there's 6.2 Bitcoin mined per block today in the current cycle that we're in. So in, tw in 2024, every 10 minutes when a block is produced, it'll be three point three and an eighth, and then half of that, one and a half in 2028, and so, so on and so forth. It'll actually be tapering off in order to make that, uh, that ceiling that they want to reach without it. Yes, that's and exactly so right. Is it going to be constant also the, the amount of time that goes by between blocks? Is there an, a chance that in 10 years, computing will be so much faster that a block will go by in a minute or the transactions are so much more abundant that blocks will go faster and they'll have to keep tapering it off? Or is a block set at 10 minutes and that's just the time? <clears throat> blocks are fenced at 10 minutes. My understanding is it can vary slightly, but here's the thing. There's actually like a, there's an adjustment that they can make. There's a difficulty adjustment that they can make depending on the computing power being applied at the time. So that helps balance the load a bit and sure, yeah. maintains that so, yeah, 10 if there's, Yeah, if there's half the computing power, then the, it'll take longer to process it and they have to buffer that out instead of just having a set. Yeah. That makes sense. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. So, um, so basically early on, uh, we were producing, uh, I think it started at 100, blo 100 Bitcoin per block and then started getting cut from there been less than that i'd have to double check but anyway we're down to we're down to six and a half uh, six and a quarter bitcoin per block now and so as you can imagine you're you're constraining and continually reducing supply and the supply is extremely predictable i mean you can basically predict the supply of bitcoin out for many many cycles for right. your cycle yeah, it's not like mining for gold or oil and you're finding it at a certain rate and it's becoming more and less you know, uh, energy intensive to receive it. It's timed out. We know exactly yes. when supplies coming in. Yep. And so there, this is where things get really interesting when you start looking at different asset classes, because uh, for example, like Bitcoin or sorry, gold is it's pretty inelastic, which means that um, when demand changes that you can change the amount of supply. So uh, as price, so, so say demand of gold is increasing, uh, price will rise because initially miners of gold aren't going to be able to react fast enough to provide supply to these buyers. Right. So over a, over a period of time, if this is sustained demand, what they'll do is they'll invest money in capital and they'll buy equipment and they'll buy mines and they'll do more research into where they can mine more gold. And the more that the price rises, the more that our miners are incentivized to mine gold. So it is fairly inelastic, but it is elastic. So there can't there you can react. Gold can react to changes in supply and demand. Bitcoin, there is no, it's completely inelastic supply. So whatever is getting mined today 
is getting mined today, there is no demand cannot change the supply. So, and that's what is really yeah. getting economists yeah. going on this thing. Yeah, that, actually, I've never seen it put out that way. That's a really good example of it too, because even though gold is relatively inelastic, there's so much that goes into having to purchase new mines and mine out new gold and you know escape the ore and everything that was involved in that, it still can be done. But Bitcoin, if they wanted to, they could, you know, turn the dial up immediately and just say, hey, today it's a thousand Bitcoin. There, there's your demand. Here's the supply for you. That constant rate needs to be maintained in order to maintain the integrity of the currency. Yes, it's a pillar of the entire const, the thesis of Bitcoin um, gotcha. is the supply. And that's, a, I mean, that's one of the main reasons that non, so there might be people that are very interested in, in cryptocurrencies because of the technology, but the people with all the money that are coming in, they, I mean, they care about the technology because they care about it to their own end that it works. Yeah. But you know, most of these guys, they want to make money. <laughs> and the reason that they have trust in it is because they know the supply. Uh, and so basically now the only thing you can take the supply side out of the equation and you can focus on demand. And I mean, so that's where, you know, I, I said we're at $600 billion right now in market yeah. cap. And so when you compare that to other asset classes, it's actually not, almost nothing. Like, for example, uh, Amazon stock, the one company, it's like $1.6 billion. Uh, no, sorry, trillion dollars, 1.6 trillion. So oh, wow, yeah. uh, three, roughly three times the value, you know, Apple's 2.2 trillion. So the, the whole, uh, gold market cap altogether is roughly like nine to ten trillion dollars yeah, so I guess when i initially was looking at cryptocurrency that's the part i was missing about it, is that the the strategy and the maintaining of the you know the status quo is a huge part of it which i kind of i realized like how most people act on the internet they try to scheme and try to figure things out i didn't realize the methodical nature of building this idea and trying to maintain it i just completely missed me and only within the last couple of weeks that i truly understand the you know it's a built-up system it's not just a sporadic new idea that people are investing in it's not the same as coming up with sham wow and how many people can invest in your company before you can sell out and go the hell home it's building a process that you're hoping is going to you know increase value over time absolutely absolutely so so what's happening now is, okay, so in May, and this happens every cycle, uh, in May, the Bitcoin supply mined per 10 minutes got cut in half. So let's just do a little you know, experiment here. So if, drastic. if demand is flat and your supply gets cut in half, what has to happen? Your price has to double just to maintain the status quo. So... Uh, and you know that it's not going to be immediate. You have to maintain that demand over a period of time. Otherwise, you probably won't see those price increases. But uh, I think one thing we're all starting to see is that there's a, an adoption phase, the S curve of technology adoption, and we're in the early adopter phase uh, at best. You know, there's many, many, many more people that have no clue what you're talking about when you say Bitcoin than that do. And as this adoption cycle, you know, increases, you know, we saw PayPal, Square, uh, you can buy Bitcoin on PayPal now. Now, there's some problems with that, 
I don't want to get into right now, but it's still, I mean, secret. so yeah, secret. Bitcoin and Square alone right now are buying up all of the newly mined Bitcoin that are mined daily. So, and, and those two companies only make up a, a tiny fraction of the interest that is coming into the space now. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, basically, as these halvings occur, you expect that uh, just due to the nature of supply and demand, that it, as long as demand holds steady, prices will appreciate. So that's one cool thing about it. Um, even after we hit the 21 million, which isn't set to happen until like 2140, that's yeah. when you'll get to uh, like a point where demand is, I mean, the key because supply won't be changing anymore. So it's just, are people buying or selling? Are there more That's people buying or are there more it, people selling? Yeah, that is a point. Is it, you know, a definitive point in the future where you can see that fluctuation start to level out or at least change in an interesting way. Cause you can say any other kind of resource that we can think of, you don't have that date in the future. And Bitcoin yeah. is specifically set up to say, this day is the last dime we were to get out of the ground. So all the diamonds are out now and start trading yep. them as it were. No other exactly. like that, not even diamonds or uranium or anything. Nothing right. is, is planted in the future. We're done with it. Everything is that's, still might be available. That's exactly right. And that's a perfect segue into our next topic, which is the uh, stock to flow cross asset model, which is a lot of fancy words for basically trying to measure the scarcity of an asset and correlating that scarcity to price of a market. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example. Um, let me give you an so, example. LSD in 1969. It produced <laughs> a lot of it and the demand was high and the supply was also high. So I'll, I, I can give you an estimated stock to flow ratio for LSD and it would be like very close to zero and you'll understand why in a second. So uh, sure. the definition of uh, the, like the stock to flow is it's pretty once you explain it, it's not really a hard concept to grasp, but it sounds a little fancy. But basically, it's how much of a commodity or an asset is currently in existence versus how much of that commodity can be produced in a year. In one year. In one year. So, like, if um, if I have a hundred ounces of gold above the ground, or ninety-nine, let's say. I have 99 ounces of gold above the ground and I can only mine one ounce of gold uh, per year, then your stock to flow ratio is going to be 99. Um, if, if you're, uh, if you're holding, like, let's use an example of something that people consume. Most products have a stock to flow of less than one because you have less inventory in existence than what is consumed in a year. So like if, um, if, if my company uh, that makes a product, you know, I know roughly how much inventory we hold at our dealers. It's about half of a year. It, it would take us about half a year to produce uh, the amount of stock that we have at our dealers. So that would have so put, it, put it into a consumable item to, to dumb it down for us, if you don't mind. Okay, so because um, obviously gold is going to gold is is some, a product or a, rather an asset you're going to hold on to, and you can produce more of it, you can sell more of it. But things like uh, food or crude oil are consumed in a very real way, where they are 
burned out of existence as yeah. far as we're concerned. Sure. Let's use um, let's use cars. Uh, okay. Cars. So uh, when I talk about existence of it, I'm going to talk about it in terms of uh, in the example of cars uh, inventory at dealerships. Let's forget about what happens after the point of sale just for a moment to simplify the example. So sure. uh, so. At every dealer across the nation, you have um, 100,000 cars, and a particular plant can produce uh, 100,000 cars in a month. So the stock to flow of that car in that example is uh, 100,000 in inventory divided by 12 because we can produce that amount of cars mm -hmm. in 12 months. Yeah. So, or you could say that's 12 million cars or 1.2 million cars produced a year. So that's like less than a tenth, you know, of the, the stock to flow ratio will be less than 0.1. It'll be, you know, whatever, 0.8 or something. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah, so um, things that are produced and consumed rapidly, uh, things that are produced and consumed rapidly are have very low stock to flow. And think about it. So if it's produced and consumed rapidly, it's probably not scarce at all, right? Because you can produce it and consume it that fast, it can't be that scarce. That's right. So gold happens to have a stock to flow ratio of like, I think it's like 56 or something, 60 maybe. So that means it would take 60 years of producing gold at the current rate to be able to store the amount of gold that is above the ground right now. Gotcha. So, so I'm going to show you guys a graph and you guys can maybe pull it up hopefully when uh, you do your thing, but I'm going to show you a graph and I think it'll help illustrate it. And I, I, I know this probably hasn't made much sense yet as to why it's important, but it's basically a way to measure scarcity uh, in, an a, in, in a way that you can compare assets, different assets, apples to apples. Okay. So here's the chart. Um, Basically, and it's really hard to see, but basically uh, on this axis here, you have total market price, like market cap. So earlier we talked about Bitcoin is currently at like $600 billion. So that's like on this chart, that's like uh, right here somewhere. And then down here you have different stock to flow ratios from 0.1, which was pretty close to our car example, all the way yeah. to 100, all the way up to 100. Uh, and like, so you can see this little dot uh, right here. So yeah, that represents that represents gold, the market of gold. That yeah. silver one below it that represents silver, and that Ooh. red dot, that red dot with all the clusters there, that's Bitcoin. So really, the super interesting thing that happens every time there's a halving. The price or the, the stock to flow ratio immediately increases by double, but the price doesn't double immediately. So what happens is it like shifts and then it's undervalued and then it like slowly rises up to this line, this, mm -hmm. this regression line. And then the next halving occurs and it shifts immediately and then it like slowly rises up in price to that next regression line. And this model, it's uh, created by a guy named Plan B. Uh, which is a pseudonym. He's also an <laughs> It's a plan. He's named Plan B. That's His name's Plan B. I highly recommend you follow him on Twitter if you start getting interested in the space. But 
he basically created this model and it's pretty much been by far the most accurate price prediction model of Bitcoin that anyone has created. Um, and it's held true. Yeah, I, I've never seen it put that way, at least on a chart that way in, in between the, the, the stock flow of that. I mean, the guy that I follow on my uh, cryptocurrency, his name is Trojan. This is another big guy, uh, Durex, and they're, they're pretty good at predicting the future market flow. And I think the big followers are Plan B, but I think that if you follow them, uh, you'll get the results much faster than Plan B because Plan B is kind of the kind of guy, who, you know, he's retroactively, you know, hindsight's always 2020. His charts are nice, but these guys, Durex and Trojan, they'll get you the money you need before you ever realize you need it. Yeah, uh, the interesting thing about his uh, model is it, it he he predicts price like out forever, pretty much based on the supply and demand, like the supply aspect that we talked about earlier. So and obviously, uh, I mean, Durex and uh, Trojan are condoms, and then Plan B is uh, you know. Like, oh, you forgot the leader of all of them is, abs <laughs> oh, is abstinence. Oh man! It wasn't totally funny, but I had to at least know you know I was fucking around before we keep. Oh, I was just gonna segue into into um into my favorite YouTube guy on the stock market and uh, and everything else that we're talking about is uh, refraining from sex. Oh, abstinence! Of, That's his handle, especially right? yeah, abstinence. Um, abstinence. Abstinence. Yeah. Abstinence. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's exactly. a scandal, but I know his real name is Refrain from Sex. Yeah, Refrain from Sex. Yep. And then he just kept it going. <laughs> yep. yep. That makes a lot of sense. I never heard it described that way, but that is interesting that if it was on the same basis as, because the way it's laid out, like you said, the supply is constant and it's even timed out, it should go on the same basis as gold. But because of all the variables in this, gold has this intrinsic nature, people inherently value it multiple forms of government even individuals take it as currency so you have this huge basis that's built up no matter how hard bitcoin works in the next five years to become legitimate they won't have the same bedrock as gold has because it's just had so many people that are all agree on it that's the only variable that i can see that can go whack off of that obviously it can change in different ways things can happen people can invest maybe satoshi dumps the thing in there but I think that's the main hurdle to get over. It's not the fact that it is unstable because the way that it works out mathematically, just like you said, it's not just a trip and thinking it's going to go up and up and up. It's, it can never go down. It's built out that way. And like you said, because of the scarcity of it, it's built that way. The only hurdle really is that uh, the trust, which is what we started the whole conversation about, which is currency needs to be built on that. And if people can trust Bitcoin as much as gold, it's going to be gold, baby. And maybe oh, you yeah. said this, Andrew. Um, but say you say you bought one Bitcoin today for $38,000, say $40,000, and you just forgot about it for 10 years, likely to be a millionaire, $500,000. I mean, like, that's pretty much like, yeah, sure. If you want to, if you want to liquidate your Bitcoin today and you sell a couple of them and you make a couple hundred grand, cause you have 10 of them or whatever it is, that's awesome. But if you really could wait and sell them in 10 years, there's a probably a pretty high likelihood based off of the way this society as a whole, as far as Earth goes, <laughs> like everyone on planet Earth goes, um, there's a very high likelihood that this is, um, it's just going to be worth your time to sit on it if you can. Is that probably true? Or is it so, going to cap out at $288,000, like you said, and there's no getting higher than that? I mean, so I, I would love to answer this question because this actually really ties up almost everything we've talked about tonight. So uh, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So you, let's, let's talk about a, a million dollar Bitcoin just because that's a nice round number and 
who doesn't want to think that they could buy one Bitcoin and be a millionaire? So is it possible? All right. So getting back to, let's start with the gold valuation and the comparisons between Bitcoin and gold. So if, if let's say we, the three of us believe that Bitcoin is as good as gold in terms of its ability to store value, it's portable, it's divisible, it's secure, um, and it's decentralized. Well, gold's, yeah, decentralized. So I think we could probably generally agree that if we accept that Bitcoin is a store of value that's as good or better than gold, then it should probably be worth about as much as gold is. Why would someone hold their money in gold when they could hold their money in something way easier to use, way cheaper to move, way cheaper to store, way more secure. Someone can't come into my house and shoot me in the head and steal my Bitcoin. They can do that with gold though. So, well, you know, devil's advocate, you can't make an engagement ring out of Bitcoin. Just say <laughs> no, but you can definitely buy one with some, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, just to reach the valuation of gold, uh, let me break out my calculator real quick. So, I want to right say, it, so the current market cap of gold is like we said, we'll use round numbers, $10 trillion. So I believe if I remember right, that, that would put the Bitcoin price to meet gold at around $500,000. Um, now we talked earlier about money supply and inflation for a reason. And a big reason is so that we could understand why Bitcoin is not inflatable. But the other reason is so that we can understand where Bitcoin price may go and why it's a good reason, why it's a good idea to put at least a little bit of your money into some Bitcoin. And that's because the current gold market cap is based on current value of the dollar. If we double the money supply and inflation runs rampant, the gold price will probably double. If we double our money supply like we have from early 2020 to today, it's somewhat logical that gold could double. So if the value of, if, if the market cap of gold doubles to $20 trillion, boom, there's your uh, million dollar Bitcoin right there. Yeah. Now that's just based on cannibalizing the gold market. There's uh, tens, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars in other safe haven assets like bonds, real estate, the stock market. So that million dollars that we just mentioned is kind of basically assuming that the only people that are gonna buy gold are people who are gonna like dump their gold and like buy Bitcoin and like gold's a thing of the past or something like that. Well, yeah. as we know, there's a lot more interest in Bitcoin than just from people who would be likely to own gold. So like I sold some stock to buy Bitcoin because I didn't have money not invested and I wanted to put money in Bitcoin. So I mm -hmm. sold stock, I bought Bitcoin. Um, and for the record, looking back, you should not have um, sold all your stock in Tesla, right? Because it's skyrocketing. <laughs> only on hindsight was that a major mistake in Europe. Oh yeah, I, I, I sold Bitcoin or I sold Bitcoin or Tesla at like mm -hmm. 400 bucks that was pre-split adjusted so it's like i think it's like four thousand dollars now if you account for the split that they did Wait, uh, did you actually have stock in tesla yeah i did <laughs> i'm stuck with you i was trying to talk <laughs> shit. you actually did 
I actually did. I made money, but not freaking 10x money like some That's of these fucking guys. dope. I, I had no, I was just trying to think of like, what's the stock that's like gone up that? Um, yeah. Uh, there you go. Yep. If you need any more evidence, this man knows what the fuck he's talking about. He had invested in Tesla, all right? <laughs> he knows um, a thing or two about a thing or two. I, I got too skittish when they like were practically on the verge of default and then they like raised a bunch of money and then they like, uh, I can't, I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to get too off topic here, but I sold too early on Tesla only in hindsight. So, uh, okay. So we talked uh, just the gold market cap alone. If you like cannibalize gold and like the banks keep printing money, like we know they're going to, that's like a million dollars right there. Now, what if like great grandma Jenkins, who has like a trust that owns 25 million dollars worth of property like income property like it's a fucking hassle to own property you have to maintain it you have to pay taxes on it uh the property like depreciates over time maintenance all this crap well why is she holding real estate i mean she's holding it as a store of value i mean she doesn't want to deal with all the hassle she just wants to know that she has a way that she can put her money somewhere and like get it back later yeah. and, and make some money old, uh, throwing the old soirees and you know debutante balls she was back in the day she lives in a small house and she has a mansion just to hold on to that real estate value much in the way you would gold or silver right exactly so well what if people like start like selling their commercial real estate because there's not as much of a demand for it because retail is like shit in the bed and like they want to put their money somewhere safe well bitcoin's turning into you know it's starting to become it's not looked at like nearly like that yet but i think that's basically the next phase so like we're gonna we're, we're like blooming into the in in uh, institutional grade investment phase of bitcoin where you're starting to get these huge billionaires that are starting to understand what it is how it works why it's got an amazing value proposition paul tudor jones stan drunkenmiller uh you know Michael Saylor, who I'm not gonna like go into detail about, but if if you want to like learn about a guy who has freaking balls too big to sit down, look up Michael Saylor. He is like a huge part of what is happening right now and the timing of it. So look at look up Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy. He's the CEO of Micro MicroStrategy. Dude is a boss. So all these guys, they're coming into this market and they're assessing it and they're like, holy crap, this thing is gonna change the world. And I want to get in now because uh, the so here's a fun tidbit. There's 43 million millionaires in the world. Not every millionaire can even own one Bitcoin. There's not enough Bitcoin in the world that every millionaire can even own one. That's how scarce it is. I mean, when I when I heard that the first time, I was like, wow. That's that that is insanely wild because yeah, if everyone did get on the Bitcoin train right this second, and all these people have massive amounts of wealth to pour into it, which would obviously disrupt the the market a bit, right? If all these large you know companies start buying it all up, it would change it up. But like you said, because it's such a set and constant uh, amount of it, you actually couldn't just buy it all up. You couldn't say. Hey, I think that oil is going to be worth a lot of money in 50 years when the internal combustion engine comes out. Buy all these oil fields up. It's just this <clears> the set amount. Even if you have more and want more, you can't actually gain more. It's so all these 
exactly so what you're saying is all these rich guys who are greedy and um and just like to turn a million dollars into 10 because that's what they do for a living um they're they're gonna you already got in they're going to take these spots and ruin it for the rest of us which is going to force everyone else to go to other forms of bitcoin like the number two which is called um ethereum ethereum Ethe yeah exactly I think so what he was saying, though, it's going to trickle us down into those that. other ones i think what he's saying is that you, they can't actually do that because they can't buy it all up unless people sell it there's only a set amount so if you don't want to give it up you can still maintain the bitcoin you have they can't actually buy it out from under you unless they over Unless they overbuy, they price you out. You could do that, but they'd have to do that on a massive scale, um, and they have to start um, paying people out, you know, massive amounts to try to gain it all. I guess it's possible, but yeah, I, I mean, mean well, saying is, sorry, go ahead. Well, what you just described is how the stock market literally works. Um, the, if if people want something and they can't get it, they'll start paying more for it. If they want it at that price, they'll pay it. If they want it at the higher price, they'll pay it. Um, if if, if they can't get the supply at the current price, the price will rise until sellers come into the market because they see that the price has increased. They're willing to sell at this price now. So they sell these guys gobble up that Bitcoin. You know, once you sell it, if you're, you know, the time, the, the time where an average person could feasibly own one Bitcoin is quickly coming to an end. And the average person, you know, I'm not saying it's necessary to own one Bitcoin, but if you have a goal of owning one Bitcoin, you better do it fast because the time is running out. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah, I saw but, some funny. It was kind of a funny quote, but it was like, um, it was like the. It was just about the stock market, but it was like the stock market is a way to measure rich people's feelings, <laughs> and it's kind of a good way to put it actually, because it is like yeah. you said, the guy the guy had an emotional response, one of those people, to the fact that Bitcoin is doing really really well, so he's he's going to pay more because he's like, I want it. I need that, you know? And that's how the market works, which is based off of feelings. That, yeah, it, it or can feelings be about company. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it definitely, you know, Tesla, in my opinion, has been, has been trading like it's based off feelings. Uh, there oh, are, has to be. I mean, the amount of fluctuation, you can't attribute that yeah. to just the, the no. market forces at all. I mean, you know, professional money managers and, and people who, you know, buy and sell stock for a living, they a lot of them base their buying on fundamentals and try to avoid getting too emotional. So there are ways to try to measure what the price of Bitcoin should be. Yeah. And so if you feel that it's underpriced today compared to what it should be priced at, then you should probably buy it. If you think it's a load of crap and it's a tulip bulb mania, then don't buy it. That's fine. When well, you mentioned two, oh, sorry, go I was going to say two really things that kind of come together that you've mentioned over this, this podcast um, I have to do with Tesla and Bitcoin, obviously, but it's the fact that, correct me if I'm wrong, SpaceX fits into there as well because they're all open source, um, especially they, they, they share their code and, and Tesla shares their, their trade secrets with other companies so then they can then take them, which is funny because the traditional company would never do that. They would right. never share their um, their QMS systems for, for this type of stuff because that's what yeah, that's, that's their, they it. hold their secrets close. Um, yeah, but those companies that are doing so well right now are the ones who are, who are ahead of the curve and going, that's the way things used to be done. The way it's uh -huh. done now is to be the one who shared the secret and inevitably you're going to be at the top of that since you're the one who put it out there in the first place. So open source okay. in today's, uh, you know, in 2021 is a real 
a real game changer. And it was for my previous company too. We sold an open source product that was like the the leader and everything. Nice. Yeah. And uh, you could probably attest to this, but I would guess that if you guys were open source and you were the leader and everything, you guys were probably just so much better than everybody else that even though it's open source, like customers come to you because they can't get that product anywhere else that's nearly as good. And was, like Tesla, oh, go ahead. Uh, Tesla is just so far ahead of their competition right now that they can command that premium, which is probably the main reason that they are so much more expensively priced to, compared to like a company like Toyota, who let's be honest in 10 years, like Toyota probably will be building a more affordable, more reliable car, electric yeah. car than Tesla will. Yeah. But right now they're just kicking so much ass. Uh, everyone is so behind. So yeah, I don't need to get into it, but it was yeah an open source product that was free that the service was not free. So um, you could be like, yeah, you can have our product for free and you can have this company manage it for you, but they're going to suck at it. Um, but we put the code out there. We can manage it better than they can. But if you do like your vendor, use them by all means. We want you to solve your own problems and solution selling it to, to them. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, but totally um, open source way to go. Um, yeah. Yep. That's uh, that, that seems to be more of the, the uh, mentality of things like Bitcoin. It's like, we're not going to hoard this all of ourselves. The nature and value of it has to do with everyone agreeing and buying in and coordinating and becoming mm -hmm. Bitcoin miners. And we all have to get into this together, which I seem, it seems to me to be like the more, the better way of um, investing and building something in the future. It's, it's an ancient idea that you can lock up uh, a product or a mentality and say, this is mine forever. I invented the vacuum. Only I sell vacuums. That's not how it works anymore. Make the best vacuum and keep making it better. And the other people will make it as well. It seems insane to me that people could lock up ideas forever, especially in this day and age where information is so readily available to everybody more than ever. The, yeah, that model the, of saying we're going to try to work together in this and be open source and I'm going to be better than you at it seems to be no brainer. Yeah. And, and investing in. Oh, sorry, guys. I just, I if think, you want to win today, you just you're gonna have to outcompete. I mean, that's just the bottom line. You have to be better uh, than your competitor because uh, the the world is not regionalized anymore. It's it's uh, whole. It's it's whole. And so, in the past, you could have regionalized businesses that could all you know they never would compete because they couldn't reach the same markets. But now you can, and you're gonna have to be the guy who kicks all these regional guys' ass if you want to be the king of the castle. Right. Yeah, and what I think, so I was gonna add to just my point of a company that I would invest in and they, they um, so again, I mentioned um, emotions and, and feelings and Andrew, you said uh, yeah. principles, was it? Uh, fundamentals, fundamentals. fundamentals. Yeah. yeah, the fundamentals of a company that I would like to work for or own or whatever it is, would be the start of the death of legacy systems and inefficient processes that fucking blow ass and everyone has hated for 50 years. Companies like Tesla, SpaceX, sounds like Bitcoin, they just, they, 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 everything's put in place to actually make sense and not make you want to rip your hair out. Um, you know, I'm sure that obviously on the, the, the uh, below management level of Tesla, those people all still all probably hate their job or whatever it is. But like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, oh, you've all probably had bosses it, that force you to do something the way that it's just been done for 50 years. And, yeah, and you dude. just go, this doesn't fucking make sense. Did and you? That's what, yeah. Did you watch Battery Day? Did you watch Battery Day this year when they did that? Freaking watch no. that. It will, it, everything you just said, they epitomized 
and displayed during their battery day. It's pretty, it was, it was very, uh, inspire as someone who works in manufacturing, mm. it was extremely inspirational. The approach that they're taking to manufacturing, it's really, really awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. And, and the only, I, I really do want to watch it cause I'm involved in QMS and, and regulatory things. And, um, and the the way forward with these things is like it's a i mean you obviously i'm sure have endless qms procedures in place for engineering practices and stuff like that and it's not far from what uh, you, i have can you tell me what qms was i don't understand oh yeah quality management system oh, okay, so it's great. it's a set of policies and procedures that make sure things are done correctly and are accountable or in, okay. and, and there's things accountable. So it's essentially like a vaccine, if you have rolled out, you make sure you know that everything exactly. along the entire cycle is done and signed off on by somebody above them to make sure that well, there wasn't a fuck up. FAA would be the best example of like Boeing and their, their, pro, oh, their okay, problem yeah. with the max would be a yeah. quality issue. Um, <clears throat> but there's some things that legacy systems you can't get away with, but you can automate things to make them work. Mm. So companies that focus on automation, we'll get into AI another time, that type of stuff. Um, yeah. Investing in them at, compared to like, you know, just older stuff that is, it might be solid. And there's, I'm, I'm sure there's a million different ways of this, but but the the things that we've talked about today all have a lot in common. Tesla and Bitcoin, they're all doing, uh, they're all related. They're changing the world, man. They're changing mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. yeah, and for a way that millennials, I think are driving a lot of it too because it makes sense because we find that the work that our parents did or whatever it is doesn't it just doesn't make sense like it just doesn't um i've seen that for working for four different you know one small company and four three different bigger companies it's just like why are you doing it this way like you don't need to do this because your yeah. grandfather said this was what That's discipline was in the 50s in the 60s been, and the man. 70s and that's cool because the eighties were the year of uh, was the year of cocaine and Christmas bonuses and that shit's gone. So we got to find our money elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's always a danger in looking back. Be like, hey, when I was this age, this is how it went and go. Less than how it works ever. It's never worked that yeah. way. Your grandparents yeah. never have the same life you do, and your grandkids won't either. So nope. it's weird to expect the same thing. Either yeah. Way. Luckily for us, in the past hundred years, it's been marching up towards you know more net income for usual people the poverty levels dropped in ma major nations uh personal nation and you know the, the life expectancy is up it's all good but it doesn't mean that automatically if you're born today you're going to have an easier way working around whether it's the economy or healthcare or whatever than the last year it's just not the way the world works you know it's not like yeah you got to be agile it's the difference you know agile, you can't yeah. do you, you a lot of people are fortunate to be able to do their grandfather's work like you know farming and which is still an agile industry big time it's changed so much besides you know, having yeah. Cows yeah even those plows. old stat, even though, like the, the coal yeah. mining and you know farming it's all still like keep marching towards the future or it'll die mm -hmm. absolutely yep that's yep. how it goes uh any, any questions you have, Dylan, before we, we do that old the wrappy up the experimentation here? Yeah, I guess for for uh, everybody who's been asking, how what's the best way to get started? Mm, great, great question. question. So, so we can all get involved in this this um, abundant future that uh, looms in front of everybody, in front of all of us, if we decide to go down that path. Um, yeah. And uh, since we all are knowledgeable on what this is now and how prosperous it can be, how do you yeah. start? 
Absolutely. So um, there's a few ways you can buy Bitcoin like directly through an exchange. Um, and then there's a couple ways you can do it indirectly through the stock market. Um, the, the only reason I would ever recommend buying it indirectly through the stock market is if like you can't access it directly for some reason and you still want to try to participate. Um, there's downsides like you don't really you, you don't own the coins at all if you do it that way. Um, uh, one example of that would be and I'll just start with that and then I'll go into the way you should probably consider doing it. One example of kind of a surrogate for Bitcoin would be buying MicroStrategy stock. I mentioned Michael Saylor earlier. I'm not going to get in detail to it, but we'll just let's put it this way. Uh, their company size is extremely small, but they bought a lot of Bitcoin. So their total company value uh, is a high percentage of Bitcoin um, and it trades on the New York Stock Exchange. So you can just buy it if you have Fidelity or E-Trade or anything like that. You can buy MicroStrategy stock. Um, that company owns 70,000 Bitcoin, which is like, I don't know today's money, but it was 1.1 billion when he bought it. And I think his average purchase price is like $16,000. So it's probably like 2.4 billion in, you know. Damn, that's uh, interesting. Just to clarify though, so you, if you're investing in that company because they're so heavily invested in Bitcoin, you're essentially investing in Bitcoin if you invest with them. Yeah, you're indirectly investing in Bitcoin. Gotcha. Yeah. But you can buy that company like say, Currently, like one good reason potentially to do this would be if you have an IRA, uh, you have retirement funds. And, and that's the Irish Republican Army. Yes. <laughs> you have a, a, a tax, you have a tax deferred retirement account. Uh, and you want to, you want to buy some for your retirement account. So you, you can't buy Bitcoin right now, uh, like in an ETF. So you buy MicroStrategy so you can participate in a tax you know friendly way but you can't buy it so that would be one way and it's not advisable unless you really can't do it any other way all right so how would, if me and dylan want to invest in bitcoin tomorrow with what we're doing right now how can i get a coin wallet and get involved in this shit yeah so then the next way that you so the reason i'm not going straight to the best way is because i hear that it's uh, there's a bit of a waiting period right now on a lot of the major exchanges because can't of imagine why yeah, because of how popular it is. So, um, uh, but okay, so the best way would be to join an exchange like Bitfinex, Bybit, Coinbase, Gemini. Uh, there's dozens, Binance. Um, some of them can operate in the United States, some of them can't if you're from the United States. Ooh, so, scandalous. The Swiss yeah. bank of Bitcoin. Yeah, so uh, the one that's pretty popular and accessible for a lot of people is like Coinbase. I think they are still taking new users right now. It's not, to be honest, the best exchange. They have uptime issues at times, but uh, you can buy it directly. Make sure if you do that, you go Coinbase Pro. The fees are a lot less and the outages are much less. I don't know why Coinbase is even still around. I only use Coinbase Pro. They're like linked. I need to research why it even still exists. Coinbase sucks compared to a Coinbase Pro. But anyway, you can make a Coinbase account. Uh, you get a wallet. You can link to your bank. You deposit some money just like you would if you were depositing to like uh, any other you know, transfer. 
you uh, you'll see the tickers and you know, the price and you can decide oh it looks like it's kind of going a little bit down now so I'm gonna buy a little bit and you can buy very small amounts um, any person can afford to put something in Bitcoin even if it's 20 bucks uh, so that's another way that's probably like any using an exchange like that is the best way and then when you're done buying I recommend that you move it off exchange to some wallet and I won't recommend any wallets here because there's tons of stuff out there on it and it's really based a lot on preference um, but that just kind of secures it a little bit more or you can move it to cold storage which would be like a uh, kind of like a USB hardware wallet that's offline. You yeah, move it to and, and to clarify that when you're talking about a cold versus hot storage, hot is basically a euphemism for it. it's connected to a, a network so it's, it's always yes. accessed and cold would be like you said USB earlier meaning it's disconnected from uh, any kind of network and it's just yeah, information on a hard drive, in other words, right? That's exactly right, yes. Gotcha. So um, cold storage is always the best form of security, but I, personally, I choose hot storage right now because I just, it's much neat. sexier. Yeah, it's much way better. sexier. Okay. Um, so, and then if, if you can't get on an exchange right now for whatever reason, uh, there's another option, which is also not great, but better than nothing, and that's PayPal. So you can buy, or Square, I'm not as familiar with Square, but I have a PayPal account. So you can buy Bitcoin right on PayPal. I think they support Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, and maybe a couple other ones. But uh, you can buy it there. Here's the problem. You can't actually transfer Bitcoin out of PayPal. You can hold it, it can appreciate, you can sell it and transfer back to your bank account, but you can't, send your PayPal purchase Bitcoin to a wallet that's outside of PayPal. You have to transfer it before you do that. You'd have to convert to cash and then... Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, so not preferred, but better than nothing. It's definitely <laughs> better than nothing. So... Bringing Elon those... back in the conversation, I don't know, to tie it back in earlier, the main reason why PayPal exists is uh, that's why Elon Musk exists, really. Co-founder of PayPal, yeah. Well, for yeah. PayPal, you wouldn't be the guy we know today. Yeah. Right. Well, very I mean, cool. All right, Andrew. Emotional yeah. selling, though, which is that even yesterday, uh, WhatsApp, who is owned by Facebook, it's like a major, um, you know, anonymous texting service. They updated their terms of service right now. Facebook is allowed to um, mine your data out of all of it. So a lot of people are dropping WhatsApp from their system. Like a lot of people were like either major celebrities, CEOs, uh, you know, drug dealers, cartels, they all used it because it was an easy way to transfer data. But now that it's not that, people are dropping like flies. You know, the service is basically exactly the same as it was before because people are concerned about their data being stolen, which is an emotional response. Plus, Elon Musk went on his Twitter yesterday and said, uh, don't use WhatsApp. He just deleted his WhatsApp account and told people that and their stock price dropped 20% in one day. And I'm nice. not saying it's because of Elon Musk, but that emotional state of fluctuating stocks is a big deal. And I think it's also a large reason why he has a Twitter account. Even if people are like, what is he crazy? He's texting all the time, but whatever. Yeah, he's eccentric, he's a celebrity. But I think a large part of his Twitter account is based on him trying to pump and deflate the price of his companies. I mean, SpaceX and Tesla, they are growing because of what they are, but Elon Musk's personality on a public sector, definitely, even if it's only negligible, it, it changes the price of the stock, which is wild. That that could even. Oh yeah, 
There's a reason. Uh, there's a reason that he's been uh, in trouble with the SEC multiple times, <laughs> and it's because of those exact price manipulations. Yep. So crazy. Well, uh, I think that's a good wrap, Andrew. Thanks for. I mean, you're beyond wealth of information, and this is a lot. You know, I went into this studying like I know nothing about this. Like, I really don't. I obviously don't have any. Um, and I'm not a big, I don't have a whole lot of interest into financial systems and I work with money managers. I work with, uh, you know, CFOs and that type of stuff, but I've never, like they do their thing. They kind of just, they're, they do, the, that's it. And cool. You know? Um, but this is awesome. I've learned, I personally have learned a ton today. Um, Same here. Been sure. more interested somewhat recently since of just how this is a, you know, you don't build, I actually are, I've been told by a money manager that I work with. He's like, you don't build wealth by working a job. And that's a pretty good um, statement to end on. I mean, it's this is if you want wealth, get interested in this. Yep. And if you're not interested, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you're actually interested and do the way you did things starting a couple of years ago um, with genuine intrinsic interest in something, you can get pretty far with this, um, especially since you know what we know of right now is that um, Bitcoin and Ethereum and uh, other um, <clears throat> cryptocurrencies that we know of are the ones right now. But, you know, the one thing we didn't mention is there could be something else in the future that pops up. Um, and it's worth yeah. jumping on the bandwagon clearly in 2011 when it's like 40 bucks. And there's another 2011 and that's this year or next year or whatever. Yeah. Um, just like Apple in 1998. It's the same fucking thing. So, um yeah, well, cool. Well, as as always, Andrew, thanks for for being our guest on here. This is always awesome. By, I'm man. certain we'll have you back uh, every ever every fourth episode, <laughs> like we've been doing so far, <laughs> about something new. So just keep us updated. If uh, any of our viewers out there have any topics for the three of us that you want to hear that you think we might be fun, you know, interesting to listen to, shout us, yeah. shout out us on our Instagram, our email, our here YouTube comments, whatever. And we'll see you guys next week. I also want to, I also want to take this uh, moment to give Andrew a courtesy. I, I did not give to him last podcast because I didn't realize it. You do have a slight verbal tick, Andrew, where every time you're done talking, you clear your throat. Ah, uh, okay. Thank you for pointing that out. Actually, really appreciate you for pointing that out because I've been trying to work on my speech. So, damn it, I just did it. Insurance at twenty-something years old. Twenty-something-year-old boy with a Lamborghini insurance. I have I have a speeding ticket, and my insurance on my fucking jet is one hundred forty-eight dollars a month. So, can't imagine. Wow. uh, Yeah. And he just kept it going. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Nice. Uh. I mean, the guy that I follow on my uh, cryptocurrency, his name is Trojan. There's another big guy, uh, Jurex, and they're they're pretty good at predicting the future market flow. And I think the big followers are Plan B, but I think that if you follow them, uh, you'll get the results much faster than Plan B because Plan B is kind of the kind of guy who, you know, he's retroactively, you know, hindsight's always 2020. His charts are nice, but these guys, Jurex and Trojan, they'll get you the money you need before you ever realize. Yeah, uh, the interesting thing about his uh, model is it, it he he predicts price like out forever, pretty much based on the supply and demand, like the supply aspect that we talked about earlier. So and obviously, uh, I mean, Durex and uh, Trojan are condoms, and then Plan B is uh, you know, 
Oh, you forgot the leader of all of them is, abs- is oh, abstinence. Shit.